something I do every few years, Eric's Grumpy Curmudgeony Yuletide Quiz. Uh, I forgot my Baugh Humbug hat. I usually bring that. Um, but uh, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a series of multiple choice questions. All right? And you guys do your best to answer them, but not out loud. And if you've taken this quiz before, you're not allowed to help. All right? So um, we want to, but we want to do this, and I do this every once in a while, just to remind us of the difference between history and Bible and tradition and things like that. That's a little bit lighthearted. So uh, here's the first question. Jesus was most likely, don't say it out loud, Jesus was most likely born in the year. Was it AD 1, 33 BC, 4 BC, or 1 BC? Okay. Uh, Jesus was most likely born in what year? Now everybody's had a chance. What do we think? 4 BC. That's correct. Um, That's because medieval monks are bad at math. Um, The original idea was to calculate BC and AD based on Christ's birth, um, but they missed a couple things. All right. Next question. The term magi comes from what language? Is it Aramaic, Hebrew, Persian, or Greek? All right. So where does the word magi come from? What do you guys think? Persian. That's correct. All right, comes from Persian. Um, comes from Persian. The word magic comes from magi, which comes from the Persian word, which means astrologer. Um, and uh, all right, everybody should know the answer to this one. How many magi visited Jesus? One? More than one? Three or four? More than one. We know it's more than one. Why? Because it's in plural, but we don't know how many there were. All right. Um, now, uh, if you if you go see a medieval uh, inc- Christmas pl- pageant, they will have Melchior, Balthazar, and Bubba. Um, I can never remember what the third one's name is, um, but we they always say. But we know there is more than one, but we do not know how many there are. If you really think about it, the idea of just three guys wandering from Persia doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, unless they're the Stooges, then it makes perfect sense. All right. Where was Jesus born? A house, a stable, a manger, or a sheepfold? A house! He wasn't born in a stable. You'll never see in the Bible that he was born in a stable. Um, and the no room in an inn thing, um, the inn was actually the back room of a family's house. It was not like the holiday inn. And he wasn't born in the manger. He was laid in the manger. All right, after he was born. So it's a house. He was born in a house. All right, here we go. Now we get into some crazy ones. All right, the scriptural account of the apostles celebrating Christmas is found in the book of Acts, Hebrews, more than one book, or there is no biblical account of Christmas celebrations? D. Although I struggled with this one, to be perfectly honest. Because to be honest, Matthew and Luke do have celebrations of Jesus' incarnation. So does that qualify as Christmas? No, but... Anyway, there are no biblical accounts of Christmas celebrations. All right, the festival of Hanukkah appears in what biblical book? John, Leviticus, Esther, or Romans? John! All right, Hanukkah Hanukkah is celebrated. You read the Feast of Dedication in John chapter 11. That is Hanukkah. All right. Herod received the title King of the Jews from his father, the Roman Senate, the people of Israel, or he gave it to himself? 
Mark Antony voted with the Roman Senate to give him the title, the King of the Jews. He got it from the Romans. The Roman emperor at the time of Jesus' birth was Tiberius, Nero, Augustus, or Constantine? Tiberius was emperor when he died. Augustus was emperor when he was born. All right. The abbreviation AD means antediluvian, after death, Lord's year, or after Christ. Lord's year, the year of the Lord. Anno Domini in Latin. Anno Domini. All right. You guys ready? There's so much grumbling going on here. St. Nicholas lived in what is this modern country? Syria, Turkey, Sweden, or France? Turkey. All right, Turkey. Lived in Turkey. Here you go. St. Nicholas was said to have been involved in A, fighting against human trafficking, B, saving the lives of innocent people convicted wrongly of crimes, C, chopping down trees devoted to demons, or D, assaulting heretics. They're all right. They're all right. St. Nicholas was infamous for leaving bags of gold in the houses of fathers of women who were sold into human trafficking to free them. Um, on numerous occasions, he traveled to the courts to argue for the innocence of soldiers. Um, he was known for chopping down trees devoted to pagan gods. And there is a story, whether it's true or not, any of these truths could be not true, but there's a story that at the Council of Nicaea, when Arius, who was the arch-heretic, was presenting his arguments, Nicholas got so mad he crossed the room and punched him in the face. I came to give presents to kid and to put kids and to punch heretics, and I just ran out of presents. <laughs> that, by the way, I should mention that that meme is my sole contribution to the internet. I created that meme back in 2012, and it circulates back to me every single Christmas. Where does our modern depiction of Santa Claus come from? Greek Orthodox icons, Twas the Night Before Christmas by Clement Clark Moore, Thomas Nast's contributions to Harper's Weekly, or advertising campaigns from Coca-Cola. B, C, and D are all correct. They are all correct. He is a composite. All right, here we go. This is only for the older people because younger people are not going to know who this guy was. Good King Wenceslas was ruler of what country? Was it Bohemia, Germany? You guys, Good King Wenceslas, you know that song, right? You know? Um, I can't sing it. Bob knows it. That song. All right. Bohemia, Germany, Alsace, Lorraine, or Denmark. You guys are all looking and going, most of those aren't countries. He was the ruler of Bohemia. All right, here you go. This is my favorite one. The first Christmas cards were made in the year 453, 1843, 726, or 1611? 1611. All right, here you go. Since we sang this song, what does Noel mean? Is it Hebrew for God comes, French for birth, Latin for dark night, I'm Batman. I had to say that. It doesn't do, or it doesn't do mean anything. It's just musical, like ah or ooh. What do you think? 
French for birth. Which, when you hear the first Noel, that's kind of weird. All right. All right. What common practice did Martin Luther popularize? Stockings on the mantle? Leaving out cookies for Santa? Wassailing? My favorite Christmas word of all time, wassailing, which means to drink spiced hard cider and wander around in the night singing songs. Just a great word. Or decorating a Christmas tree. All right. D, decorating a Christmas tree. He is the first guy to come up with the brilliant idea of taking something that is outside, dragging it inside, and then putting candles on it. Because that's brilliant, right? Dried pine needles and candles. Great. And people said Martin Luther was smart. All right. Which of the following religions celebrate the virgin birth? Baha'i faith, Islam, Jehovah's Witnesses, or all of the above? All of the above. Most people do not realize that Islam agrees, believes in the virgin birth. All right. My last question. What city outlawed Christmas for over 20 years? Rome, London, Boston, or Beijing? Boston. From 1659 to 1681, it was illegal to observe Christmas in Boston. Um, Because Oliver Cromwell was leading the Commonwealth in England and the Puritans didn't like Christmas. They felt that it was a carnal celebration of too much fun. And Puritans did not believe in having fun. So, now you've learned something about Christmas. How many of you got 100? So... um, all right, so uh, obviously obviously there's a lot. Now here's the thing, and, and we joke around about this, right? But here's the thing. Are traditions that aren't necessarily biblical or historical bad? No. Now, if it's anti-Christian, all right, then there's an issue there. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. I've met people over the years who are like, don't have a Christmas tree, that's a pagan sign, that's a pole committed to Asherah. I'm like, yeah, that's what the guy who was selling in the parking lot of, of the Walmart was thinking. I'm going to get a pole dedicated to Asherah into the pastor's house. Now, I don't have a live Christmas tree because my wife and I kill Christmas trees. We are good at it. I mean, we excel at it. Um, but uh, we, have a, we have a fake Christmas tree. It's starting to look a little weak. You know, it's started to, we've managed to even kill a fake Christmas tree. Um, but it took us like 15 years to do it, so we're, we're in good shape. Um, but there's nothing wrong with these, these it's necessarily wrong with traditions that aren't in the Bible. Um, why do we develop traditions? Why do we develop beliefs? Why do, we, uh, why do we even create myths? I won't even talk about the one big myth that looms around Christmas, but why do we, why do we create these things? It's to give significance and value um, on the surface of something, so that people then can get to the depths of it. So um, now, do I do I wish that sometimes we we had a little less in the way of traditions and things like that? Sure. But what would I wear for Christmas if they hadn't invented the Grinch? I mean, the Grinch and and um, Scrooge are like my entire Christmas tradition, you know, between the two of them. Anyway, um, so. We're continuing our journey uh, through the history, the long history of Israel coming up to Christ. And so I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew again. 
in Matthew chapter 1. We left off um, in verse 7 with Solomon, uh, the son of David. Last week we left off with Solomon, the son of David. So uh, just real, real briefly, just to give you this, Solomon comes to the throne around 960 BC, so about 3,000 years ago. Um, and uh, he, he rules what's called an, an Iron Age 2B secondary state. Um, what, what happened was that uh, there was this thing called the Late Bronze Age Collapse. All of the infrastructure of the ancient world, ancient Mediterranean world, fell apart pretty much all at once within the course of a couple, a couple centuries. And people gravitated to wherever there was uh, safety, uh, wherever there was power. And one of those places that, that became a safe haven was to move to what they call the Eastern Levant, um, the Jordan River Valley, the Judean Mountains. It was hard to attack you when you lived up in the hills. And so archaeologically, you can actually see an influx of a group of, of people around this time period into that area, which comprises the ancient Israelites. Now, um, I created a handout that I forgot to print. So I will give it to you next week, um, talking about the historicity of the House of David and Hezekiah and um, the kings of Israel. I'll put it in the bulletin next week, and I'll, I'll upload it to the website as well. Um, I just got busy with a couple other things and forgot to print it, so it's my fault. Um, but during this, basically what happens is Solomon becomes the king of this. But any time you have a group of people that you concentrate together um, to, for protection or for economic gain or whatever, eventually what happens is it gets too big for the system and it has to kind of come apart. Um, this always happens in human society. Um, but in Matthew chapter 1 we read, in verse 7, Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the son of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the son of Uzziah, Uzziah the, son, uh, the father of Yotham, Yotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the fun, father of Hezekiah, uh, Hezekiah the fun, father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, Amos the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Yechoniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Um, so around, around 1960, we get this nation of Israel coalesces into what is today modern-day Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. It grows, it prospers, and then um, it gets too big for itself. De Solomon's son Rehoboam is not that particularly great king, so there's a general named Jeroboam who comes up from exile in Egypt. He takes over the northern kingdom, establishes a second kingdom. We're not going to talk about all that because that is, um, we covered it in Chronicles and we've talked about it before. Um, but this southern kingdom that is ruled by the house of David, which is this list of kings, lasts from about 1000 BC um, to around 600 BC, so about 400 years. Um, and all the kings of this kingdom are descendants of David. Um, so, uh, so that's what's recorded here in Matthew. It's this descent um, from David. But just because they were descended from David does not mean that their life was perfect. Now, let me just, I want to give you a little bit of context on this so that you can, you can grasp what we're talking about here. Um, the cities of Samaria 
and Jerusalem, which are the capitals and the prominent places that you see in First and Second Kings. They're the two cities that you're always talking about in those books. Just to give you some context, those massive cities, their populations were less than 20,000 people. We're not talking about millions and millions of people. In fact, the entire population of Iron Age Levant, so today from southern Syria all the way down to what would be the border of Saudi Arabia and Jordan, the entire population was less than half a million people. So imagine the state of New Jersey with the combined population of Manchester, Nashua, and Portsmouth. That's the entire population of this region. A very, very different world than we think of. There are more people in Merrimack than there were in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was much smaller. Jerusalem was Ancient Jerusalem is roughly the size of Merrimack High. It's not very big. It's up on top of a hill in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was a fortified space. And basically what happened was when invading armies came, everybody ran up the hill, got inside the walls, waited for the armies to starve, and then went back to home. That was how it worked. So this is the world that the house of David is ruling. So when we read the Bible, sometimes we read it and we, we write it on our scale. We kind of put it on our scale, which is enormous. There are more human beings alive today than there were total prior to the year 1850. From the beginning of time until 1850, there are more people alive today than there were total on the planet. I mean, all the way through. At 8 billion people on earth, it's, it's a scale that's hard to imagine. Back in those days, you're talking about a world where the entire world might have been somewhere south of 100 million. There's just not a lot of people on the planet. You say, why are there so many people now? Twinkies. <laughs> Processed foods, improvements in agriculture, all of those things... People live longer because of medicine. People live longer because of chemistry. I mean, think about it. We talk about a Christmas tree, lighting it with candles. People in the 1600s were not that bright. No, I'm just... (laughs) Death death was much more common. I mean, remember that this is a world with antibiotics. Okay? So how many of you have ever met anybody who had black death? Anyone met anyone who's had the plague? All right. You know that the plague had the pneumonic plague had a 99% mortality rate. Today you go to the hospital and you get some antibiotics and go home for the same disease. The world was very different. Um, so, so this is a much smaller population living much more separated from everybody, and that means that when something happens in the world that you can't that is bigger than the scale you can deal with, you don't know what to do with it. So imagine you live in Jerusalem. The entire population of the Judean highlands is 120,000 people total. Men, women, children, donkeys, not sheep. There were a lot more of them. And an army of 185,000 Assyrians show up. The army outnumbers your entire country. What do you do? (laughs) You pray to God for the plague. 
which is exactly what Hezekiah does in 2 Kings 20. And the description in the Bible is that an angel of the Lord swept through the camp of the Assyrians and killed the soldiers. Well, guess what angel of the Lord sweeping through and killing people usually means in the Old Testament? It, it usually means there was a plague, a divine plague. Um, it's what happens in Egypt. It's what happens there in 2 Kings 20. Um, and there's a 99.9% mortality rate. All right, so um, we're in a world with very, very few people. We're in a world where warfare is something that you do. I, I don't, I don't want to make it weak, but the, warfare was almost like a recreational activity. Now, this sounds a little odd. All right, but think about it. Now, I know none of you, I, I'm hoping none of you have actually been shot with an arrow. Anybody have a younger brother who is just really annoying? Um, you get shot with an arrow unless it hits your heart um, or somehow miraculously goes through one of the soft parts of your brain. Odds are you're going to be in a lot of pain, but you're going to be okay. Um, how many of you have ever cut yourself with a knife? Really sharp knife. All right. You cut yourself with a really sharp knife and you go, ow! How many times have you had a really, really deep cut? I, I have had, in my life, I have had two occasions where I've been cut through to the bone. Um, one was on my knee, and I have a, a scar on my knee from that, and one is on my arm where, I, where my dog tried to attack my sister, and I protected her, um, and he bit me, and bit all the way down in, into my arm. Um, so, so I have these two things, these two moments in my life where I looked at a gaping wound on my body, and saw bone. But I recovered. Not that bad. You know, for the most part, warfare in those days, you fought during the season of the kings. People died. I'm not saying that people didn't die, but the vast majority of people just got wounded. And then you finished the battle, and literally, I wish I were making this up, but literally the rulers would go, are you done? And the other guy would go, yeah, I'm done. they just pack up and leave. They'd bundle up their bodies and their wounded and go back. Enter the Assyrians. Now around uh, the year 800, a little bit before 800, around 850 or so, the Assyrians emerge in this area called Nineveh. Now the book of Jonah describes Nineveh as three days across. It's actually, there's like, a, there's like a, uh, an area where there are three cities in kind of a metroplex, uh, for lack of a better term. And it takes three days to cross that 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 metroplex area. Um, the Assyrians believe in total war. So imagine you go to a flag football game or a touch football game and one dude shows up in pads and a helmet and starts playing like you're playing NFL football. This is what the Assyrians were. Everybody else fought these seasonal wars. There was battle. There was, you take some land, I take some land. We fight each other. Okay, but at the end of the day, we're done with our battle. We, we, we don't fight at night. You know, we, we go back to our camps at night. We decide, it literally was like, you, you know how in wrestling, how many of you were wrestlers? High school wrestlers? Anybody? No one? Oh man, I gotta recruit more people. Um, all right. In wrestling, if you get in a situation that the referee has to stop the match, for something, a safety issue or something like that, he decides what, who should be on top and who should be on bottom, and then you line back up, and then they blow the whistle, and you start again. 
All right, judo is the same kind of way. Judo, you kind of go to the edge, like, they'll line you up and they'll have you have your hands like this and then they'll blow the whistle and you get to start playing again from that position. Well, that was kind of how warfare was in, in the ancient Levant. You fought until like twilight and then everybody went, are you good for the night? And everybody went and had dinner. And then they came back and fought in the morning. They kind of reset where they were. They said, okay, I think this unit was over here and this unit was over here. You agree? You agree? Okay, we agree. Okay. All right, and go. All right, kill each other. That was, that was kind of how you fought. Not a lot of people, not super effective weapons. The Assyrians are total warfare. They show up with heavy chariots, chariots armored. Um, with special wheels pulled by four horses instead of the normal one. These are the Sherman tanks, the M1 Abram tanks of the ancient world. They have spikes on the wheels. They're wielding these massive spears, huge swords. They have long beards that they weave the bones of their enemies into. They are ruthless. They are horrid to the people. that, And they are out to conquer and conquer they do. And when they conquer, they set up obelisks to remind you that they conquered you. They, they build up monoliths to say, hey, we are the biggest, baddest men in the world. The book of Ezekiel records some of their behaviors. It had become so well known that everybody knew. When the Assyrians conquered you, they would line up the leaders of your kingdom. They would kill a quarter of them. And those who were left, they had iron hooks like fish hooks on chains. And they would take the hook and push it through your cheek. And then march you past your people being dragged like a fish caught in a river. They were barbarians. And there were a lot of them. And in 722 BC, they conquered the city of Samaria literally by squeezing it to death. They surrounded it with their army and every day just inched one step closer until they were literally piled up on the walls and there was no way to get to the water, no way to get to your crops. And then to make sure that if their siege ran to the winter and and they were going to have to go home and go into winter camp... They cut down every tree. They burned every field. They stopped up every well. So you got to starve all winter until they came back to attack you again. In 2 Kings chapter 20, that shows up outside of Jerusalem. And there's this moment where the Rabshaka, which is a title, not a name, the Rabshaka climbs up on, a, on a, 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 an incline and shouts to the people of Jerusalem, do you think your God can save you from us? And probably most of the people were in Jerusalem going, no. And Hezekiah, the prophet Isaiah, goes to Hezekiah and he says, these people are not taking this city. And I mentioned it before, that night Hezekiah prays to God, and that night, a plague wipes out their entire army. Their, their king goes home, and historically, it's been verified. He leaves Ju- Judah, although in his story, he just came home to like get his car keys or something. Um, and he's assassinated, uh, and Assyria doesn't threat, is threaten Judah again. But in 586 BC, um, the uh, Babylonian king that we know as Nebuchadnezzar showed up. Um, now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's name is actually Nabuchodori Oshora, 
Um, but Nebuchadnezzar sounds better. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar shows up and he conquers the city of Jerusalem. This is extraordinary. This to me as a historian is amazing because Jerusalem is nigh on impossible to conquer. It sits on the top of a hill in the middle of the desert. I'm not making this up. In fact, a number of historians I have read, read histories of Jerusalem have said there was no reason for anyone to live in Jerusalem. This is a site that is solely devoted to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It only builds up as a city because of, uh, because of this purpose. 20,000 people, let's, let's be generous and say 50,000 people behind the walls of Jerusalem surrounded by the armies of Babylon for 18 months. And the Babylonians finally break through. Now this whole time, by the way, the prophet Jeremiah, if you want to know uh, what it was like to be a prophet, the whole time Jeremiah is going, this is what you deserve, you should open the gates. You've committed idolatry. You've worshipped false gods. You don't worship the God who your city is dedicated to. You should open the gates and take your just resorts. The Babylonians are coming for you. There's no stopping it. God has sent them. The response was, by the way, to throw him in a mud pit and let his lower body rot. To the point that when the Babylonians finally break into Jerusalem after 18 months, in 586 B.C., um, the, the, the book of Lamentations actually su- is actually a song about this, about the conquest of Jerusalem. When they break into Jerusalem, there is nothing left. There are no food reserves. There are no infrastructure. The city has completely and utterly collapsed. The first thing the, guard, the, uh, the, um, the Babylonians do is find us Jeremiah. And they pull Jeremiah out of the pit. And if I'm Jeremiah, I'm like, no, no, leave me here because otherwise they're going to kill me. Um, and they rescue him. Babylonians take Jerusalem. They take the people of, of, of the, the ruling elite of Jerusalem and they take them to exile in Babylon. And then that doesn't last too long. Nebuchadnezzar dies. His son takes over. His son's kind of a, a kook. Um, I don't really know how to describe him. <laughs> he was kind of a weirdo. Um, he was like off in an oasis somewhere staring at the moon. Um, and his son had taken over. This is in the book of Daniel. Um, the, Persians take, uh, the Persians take Babylon, this next group, um, the Iranians, by the way. The word Iran. You want to know who Iran is in your, um, in your, on your maps? Iran is a version of Aryan. Aryan is what the Persians called themselves. They did not call themselves Persians. It used to be called Aranistan. That's where we get the word Iran from. Um, that they're the Persians. Farsi is the Persian language. Um, and so uh, the, the Persians who are kind of working for the Babylonians take over Babylon. Um, and one of my favorite people of all time in history, Kurush, he's just got a great name. Uh, Kurush, that just sounds awesome. Um, Kurush, or Cyrus the Great, takes Babylon. And the first thing he does, he takes everybody that Babylon has captured and drawn to Babylon. He says, you go home, and you build your temples, and you build your kingdoms, and all I ask is that you serve me. And so some of the Jews, not all of them, go back to their homeland under a guy named Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel is the grandson of the brother of a failed king. 
but he's a descendant of David. Probably taken as a, as a uh, hostage during the reign of his father, Eliakim, or Jehoiakim, and lives in Babylon his entire life as a Babylonian ally, as a leader of the, the Jewish community in Babylon. Then the Persians come in and they say to Zerubbabel, they say, you go ahead and go home. And so Zerubbabel gathers up a group of the Jews. Some of them stay behind. There's actually a place in Babylon called Al-Yahud, Jewtown. That's actually what it means in, uh, in Akkadian. And they stay. But a group of Jews, they pack up. They're loaded up with all of their treasures. They move back to Jerusalem. And they begin to rebuild the temple. And I want to bring us, I sell a whole story to bring us to the little book of Haggai. If you're in Matthew 1, go back just a few pages, you'll hit Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. Haggai is a prophet who is serving under Zerubbabel. And I'm going to read Haggai 2. In the seventh month, On the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor or ruler of Yehuda, to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high king, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? They're rebuilding the temple. It's weak, it's poor compared to Solomon's temple. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt... My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sky, sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. What does the angel say that Jesus' name will be? Emmanuel, God among us. And what do they say over and over to everybody they talk to in announcing Jesus' birth? Fear not. The longing for Messiah is reflected here in the life of Zerubbabel. He was a shadow of his predecessor David. Uh, uh, Raised in captivity given permission by a greater sovereign to go and and build a little temple for his people. 
to live on the perimeter of the known world and just be a little governor for a little while. And it, Haggai says, you go tell Zerubbabel, I haven't left. God says, I am still with you. My spirit is still in the midst of you. So no matter what your situation is, no matter what the consequences of your actions, like I talked about last week, are, no matter how dark the valley of the shadow of death is now, no matter how much you think you don't deserve it, my spirit is still among you. So don't be afraid. We act like the incarnation of Jesus was something God came up with at the last minute. Sometimes we read the Christmas story and we go, we go, wow, what a good idea God had. John understood that Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. This was always God's plan. He was always in our midst. He was always there. And the incarnation, he becomes the express image of God according to the epistle of the Hebrews. But that was, God did not change his agenda and his plan at the incarnation. He simply made it more visible for us. It wasn't enough for us in our broken, sinful way to believe that God was present with us. God knew that from the beginning of time that we would need Jesus. We would need to see God with us. We would need to see Him go to the cross and die and be buried and raised again so we would finally understand what it meant not to fear because our God was with us. What is God doing with the Bible, with the story of Israel? He is just helping us see that he has been the same the whole time. The only thing that's changing is us. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always intended to save us through Jesus He has always intended to redeem you. He has always intended to transform your life. You are not an afterthought. The redemption of creation, and you are a part of that, has always been God's plan. But sometimes we have to go into exile and lose everything so that we can get a perspective on what God wants to give us. We have to lose everything we've built so we can see what He's building. We even sometimes have to lose what He has done so that in the restoration we can understand it's He who does it. Does God use loss in the lives of His people to give them perspective on what he is building from the ashes of the world we have burned down. Yes. God's work, 
the redemption of creation. It's the power of God, the life of the new world, reborn from the ashes of the world we destroy. In our sin and our destruction and our hatred and our malice, this world is falling apart. But this is not the world God intends. He is doing something new. So you get overwhelmed with the darkness of this world. I know I do. Every time I hear another cancer diagnosis, I get angry at the failure of this world to be what it should be. Every time I hear about another genocide or another... And the fact that we live in a world where I have to actually use another to modify genocide. I live in a world of darkness and frustration. And you say, well, how do you know that sin exists? Just look at human beings. We need a Savior. We need restoration. We need redemption. We need hope. We need a way out because no matter how good you are as a person, you cannot look around the world and go, we're all set. That's why Jesus stepped in. To restore, to rebuild, to renew, to recreate, to enliven a world that if we were in charge would be nothing but charred remains. Give a human being the power to destroy everything so that he gets something and the temptation is always there. But through Haggai, Yahweh says, fear not. I have not abandoned you. What are Jesus' last words in the book of Matthew? Hello, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. See, Matthew opens with, you will call him Emmanuel, God with us, and closes with, I'm still with you. Would you join me in a word of prayer? No matter how dark it gets, you are still here. No matter how hard this life is, you are still in our midst. More times than not, I don't feel like you're there. More times than not, I doubt whether you're there. And yet you promised, so even if I don't feel it, it's still real. Lord, help us to to trust your promises when we fail in keeping our own. Help us to trust your beauty when the world around us gets ugly. Help us to trust your restoration and redemption when things start to fall apart. And help us in this season where we remember the incarnation that you have never given up. You believe You believe that we as your church are still useful in your hands. 
that we as parents and friends and spouses in every relationship we have, you believe there is still work for us to do to redeem, to renew, to recreate. And you give us your spirit to do it. Help us to be an encouragement to one another. Help us to transform the lives around us. Help us to be the voice of the Holy Spirit calling to those who do not know you that they might see the one true God at work. Heavenly Father, we pray all this in your name through Jesus Christ our Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go and be the church.